0: Welcome. This is your host of the Ghost Heard Stories podcast. My guest this week is Scott Billings. Scott started the Tucson, Arizona Fire Department Academy in 1999 and served on the Tucson Fire Department until his retirement in 2020. Scott was a firefighter for two years after his 22 week academy and then became a paramedic for the remainder of his career. Scott's favorite part about his job was helping people in desperate need, and he was able to do that effectively as a paramedic, reducing the burden of his stressful and challenging schedule. Scott is now a nurse and continues his passion for helping people who need medical help. He has a beautiful family of five, two of which are now firefighters themselves. His beautiful wife is my wife's sister, and they live less than 15 minutes from us, so I get the joy of spending time with Scott on occasion. Hello everyone, and welcome to Ghost herd Stories. I'm your host, Troy Gent. Ghost Herd Stories' mission is using humorous stories from veterans and first responders to reduce the burden of families whose veteran or first responder committed suicide. Ghost Herd Stories' vision is to use humor from veteran and first responder stories to prevent suicide within our ranks and reduce the burden of families whose veteran or first responder committed suicide. We hoped to attract veterans and first responders as well as those interested in knowing more about what it's like to be in our shoes while we wear or wore those shoes. All right, well, thanks for coming, Scott. Welcome. Go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your career.
1: Well, um, let's see, I actually went to uh, college first, finished up about oh spring of 1997, and then I was down at Tucson. I'd gone to college up in Flagstaff, Arizona. I had done an internship, I had gone to graduate school, and uh, I ran into a friend who told me to try to do a ride-along with the fire department. He thought I would fit in well. I had never really thought about it, but I was kind of deciding on what direction I wanted to go with my career. And in 1998, I went on a ride along, and just just being in the truck and the response in the truck, and you know, going Code Three down the road, I knew I, that's really where so, I yeah, wanted to a be. Lot of drilling, adrenaline? Um, or... yeah, even just sitting in the passenger seat, seeing them and responding, and seeing the truck move through traffic and knowing what kind of call we were going to, yeah. I just felt like you know, really alive.
0: Did that hold true throughout your career? Was it always there for 21 years or whatever? I'd say
1: there were there were times where, yeah, you feel more of a rush than others. Sure. I mean, I was pretty blessed in that sense where I always felt really engaged 95-plus percent of the time in my career responding to calls. I mean, in the middle of the night, it's always a little bit tougher at 3 in the morning. Sure. But I tended to actually really shine after midnight. My, my lull in my career during... The day was always like between like 1 and 5 p.m. I literally could barely function early to later afternoon. But after that, like early morning up to 1 and then evening into night and overnight, I, I, that's really where I shined. For some reason, I could very, very easily wake up in the middle of the night and, and just instantly be awake and alert. A lot of guys really, really struggled with that, which got them into situations where... Well, they, they got into trouble because they weren't thinking and they weren't preparing their minds on the way to a call. Sure. Especially as a medic, when you're going to something critical in the middle of the night, you can't really show up half engaged. You have to always be you know, fully engaged from the moment you arrive on scene, so.
0: I was kind of the same way in the Marine Corps where I'd be ready to go Super early, yeah, and I piss people off sometimes. Yeah, was, like stop having so much energy. Yeah,
1: stop having so. And they would look at me. I would get to call at two in the morning, and I'm like, "Hey guys, hey, guys. you know." And they're, and they're like, yeah, "Get out of my face," you know. And so there are certain nights, like the doomsday shift on our tour. We call it a tour, so it was one 24-hour shift on, one 24-hour shift off, for five shift with a day off in between, you know. And then we would get six days off, so we were on a
0: five-six. But I always said... How long would it take you in that six days to feel like I've recovered from that one-on-one-off schedule? Oh, well, we were a very busy very busy city,
1: so it take me a couple of days. A couple of days. I always said that on my career, everything bad that ever could happen in life and on shift happened on the fourth shift of our five-day tour. Because <laughs> by the time you got to the fourth shift, everybody was pissed at the world and everyone was angry. They you know, Everyone was already so tired into the fourth shift. Yeah that everyone would get in fights. It seemed like all the bad calls happened then. Maybe it was just more remarkable in my mind because I was always so tired by the fourth, you know, 24-hour shift. You know, the whole crew was on edge. And it seemed
0: like your response to the world too, so calls were like the worst calls. Yes,
1: yeah. You didn't really thrive as a firefighter in life. As you went through the years, you just kind of existed. And, and it was even more more so magnified by the latter parts of the tour Because you're already like perpetually chronically exhausted and chronically worn down. But by the fourth shift, if you work the whole tour, it it was on. And then when you got to the fifth shift, you were euphoric because you you were like, oh, man, I got less than 24 hours. So I got my six day off. But the fourth shift is like overcoming that, you know, that wall, that great wall in front of you. So uh, it was by that point, it was like you're chronically tired, you're fatigued. You, you don't have the focus and concentration and, and you're on edge already. Everybody got in arguments. We had brawls at the station, not physical, <laughs> but arguments, things, you know, captains on edge. I, I remember one time, I mean, this is just kind of how really ridiculous it got. You're supposed to let everyone know in the morning if you're in or out for chow. And I didn't indicate, I guess, properly if I was going to be in or out for lunch. So like I had multiple people basically yelling at me because I was going to, cost them like $2 more for the day. And this is like four shift into the tour and I was just like what what the hell are we arguing about at this point? You know, I'm just like you're arguing over $2 and you really got into it got into yeah. a fight. And then the captain started being like you're irresponsible and you're selfish and you're And I'm like, dude, I'm like I'm barely existing at this point. It's like four shift, I can't even, you know, think straight. Yeah. And I just forgot to tell you about Chow. And so we, we got into the point where I was just like, you want to take me out? I'm standing in the middle, (laughs) middle of the family room and I'm like, okay, let's fight then, you know, we're fighting over like a $2 chow bill over lunch. And I walked into the, I walked away and I walked into the locker room and I mean, I was aggressive on my end I was, I was mad at that point because I was on edge, but it got to the point where. Some of the days you just would like kind of look at each other and feel on edge, you know. You just learn yeah. to kind of steer away from yeah, each other sure. at times. And everyone would kind of be able to go to their rooms to have a little bit of
0: space. Did you find that would start over with a different crew? You had some guys there for a couple of years maybe. Uh, you were on the same shift as several guys. You built that bond. And then maybe you changed and then you had to kind of start over to learn there. Yeah, I mean,
1: there were you, you learned that certain crews were, were known for starting or causing trouble Mm -hmm. or being really really hard on people so you you kind of knew going into those crews in that station it might be even a station that was well known but we had certain shifts like a shift was very very uptight and rigid you're like hey guys you know they're like the more straight (laughs) laced guys and c shift were kind of kind of the guys who were on the fringe guys they were kind of always living on the edge they were always kind of trouble causers and then b-shift yeah. was like happy-go-lucky funny guys and so i always knew going in with some of the c-shift crews it was going to be on even if you were on their shift interacting with them in the morning leaving or coming on was yeah. good it, they they were on edge all the time and they were always poking poking the bear so to speak <laughs> i remember i used to ride my my bike to station 15 and I was on B shift at the time, and C shift. They were just a bunch of ass wipes, man. They they just were always looking for trouble. I remember, I would ride my bike in the morning, and I would actually literally walk through the front door and carry the bike. I wouldn't even roll it through the station. Well, they they thought it was arrogant of me to actually carry my bike through the
0: station. They would have rather had you roll it.
1: Well, no, they would have. They wanted me to go around the outside of the building and find an exterior door in the bay. Okay, yeah and just knock on the door, ring the buzzer and, and leave it in the bay. Okay. But it was it was hard to get to that side of the station and when I rode up, you always rode up right to the front door. Well, they they thought that I was just being arrogant about it and one day they just went off on me, just like, "How who do you think you are carrying your bike through the station?" And I was just like, "What are you talking about?" So, I go, "Oh, you don't like my bike in the station? So I started, I let it down and I started riding it around the station inside. And I was like, oh, you don't like it in the station? So I started rolling it around the station and rocking it all through everywhere. I go, you don't like that? Then take me on. So then I, bu- I was like ready to fight all five of them. I was like, I can't believe people are like this, you know, but I knew their kind of their past and their history. Yeah. Eventually after the kind of settled down that incident, <laughs> the, actually the captain from Sea Shift came up to me and he was actually like, hey, I'm glad you actually stood up Stoodle, to them yeah. because they would have probably ridden you yeah. about little things going on. But sure. but that's kind of how fire life was. You literally had to kind of gather yourself, kind of walking in the front door each day because it was a gauntlet, like because there were two, you know, tables at the family room area and everyone was sitting at them. And so as soon as you walked in the front door, they're all sitting there having coffee and they're like, oh, buildings, you know, how's your mom today? You know, and this and... And so it was like you literally kind of had to gather yourself and build yourself up yeah. before you opened the door and walked between the tables. Because for the next 24 hours, they were going to try to cut you down as much as they could. It was like walking into you know a lion's den, but every single lion is the alpha male lion. You know, I mean, it was like who can beat down who to be on top? Even I remember one captain saying to me, he was saying basically like, I have a hierarchy of who's the lowest at this station and who's the highest. And I remember thinking to myself, really, that's not really the way to lead. But there were crews that were like that. They, they very much favored their own crew because there'd be multiple trucks. Kind of getting back to it, um, where I started, after that ride along, I ended up applying in spring of 99, and there were roughly, I think, 3,200 guys that tested, and it ended up getting whittled down to 40 of us that ended up getting into the class.
0: Is that what their cap is, is 40 for a class? Well, it just
1: depends on their needs for that year. Yeah, sure. But it ended up getting whittled. So I didn't have any fire experience. I didn't have any EMT. My, my background was in exercise physiology and biology, But so I had a background with the human body. But I didn't have any EMT experience, no fire.
0: What set you apart that out of 3200, they picked you?
1: Well, I scored really well on the written, and then the physical was a breeze because I always trained very, very hard. Yeah. Um, but then we had multiple interviews with like a city board, and then we had them with a fire board interview only. And I think I knocked it out of the park with both interviews. I tried to just be, you know, genuine, you know, and sincere. Yeah. They ask you a question, and then they interject something in the middle of the answer to, to see, see if it throws guy. you off. Yeah. And I was able to just redirect and answer. Well, let me ask that. You know, answer that for you, sure. and then come back. So they could see I was able to change gears pretty well. I think out of the thirty-two hundred. Process, I think I ended up scoring sixth. I ended up getting in. We started in uh, July of '99, which is in the middle of summer in Tucson, which was absolutely brutal. You know, I figured the first two weeks of the academy were just, it was like basically survival mode. We were in drilling all day on blacktop in the middle of summer. Yeah. And I was wearing, you know, 30 pounds of insulation. I thought many points I was going to die. I I literally thought, and I was physically, physically fit because I trained. I was training in like washes and thick sand and running in and, and, and heat and I would take it up for it and nothing, yeah. nothing ever prepared me for it. it. was literally, it was utter, it was utter hell. Yeah. I, I was literally remember staring at other people thinking, I, I'm not going to die before them. Like, <laughs> I, I, I won't let myself die before them. Yeah. I remember we would do eight hours a day. I would go through 32 ounce, a minimum of 32 ounce bottle of an hour. And I wouldn't pee for yeah. 9, 10 hours. Yeah. I was just drenched from head to toe. I remember my heartbeat was like 130, 140 just standing, doing nothing. Yeah, just all day. Just through. because the heat. Yeah. You couldn't you couldn't dissipate any heat out of the sure. turnouts. So I was like, dum, 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 and I, but after, it's amazing how the human body adjusts. After a couple of weeks, you actually, instead of survive, you started to kind of thrive. It, yeah. But there were a couple of guys that went down, passed out, you know what I mean? But it, that was the hardest part is adjusting to the extreme, extreme heat. We would do PT in the morning. Mm. And so we would already be tired. And then we would drill all day yeah. in turnouts. There were a couple guys that threw up, but it was mostly just dehydration and feeling kind of like you're going to pass out or passing out. Or, and it was, became so monotonous. It was just pull hose, throw hose, lay down hose, pick it up, pull hose, throw hose, lay it down, pick it up. And you just do it for hours. So it was so monotonous. We, we had this one where we had, it was called the mud bog. And we actually had to pull charged hose line, which is very, very hard to pull. And it was in thick, thick mud and water and full turnouts. And I remember at that point, by that point, it was like three weeks in, I was like, hell yeah, man, I'm feeling good. Like I, I could just tear through walls. And I remember they, they charged it to fully charged. So it's, you know, 50 foot section, ch- fully charged with water and you're trudging through heavy mud and water. You had to turn the hose on, which is is causing you know negative push on you. And I remember just literally turning on this hose and like walking like I was literally walking with a pillow in my arm and just walking straight through the mud and charging. And I remember the captain walking over and going, who the hell do you think you are showing me up like this and walking through the mud so fast? He goes, you obviously don't have that hose charged correctly and then he grabbed the hose and turned it on and it like jerked him back and he almost (laughs) fell in the mud. And he goes, son of a bitch, Billings, who do you think you are showing us up like that? And I was just like, I'm just doing my thing, man. I I felt like superhuman by that point, like three, four weeks into it. Like I was already really well-trained, but then I think I had adapted, and I was extremely strong. So like they thought I was show- showing them up. I yeah. was just like, you told me to, <laughs> you you told me to squirt the hose, walk yeah, through thick mud yeah. and walk at this target and spray it. And that's what I'm doing. He goes, you must be arrogant. You know, they always thought I was arrogant. Yeah. Everyone thought I was arrogant, but I was just doing my thing. <laughs> I was like, in my, in my world, if you tell me to do something, I'm going to kick its ass. Yeah. Like if you tell me to run towers, I'm going to beat everybody. You tell me to march through mud. I'm going to go as fast as I can and hit the target. If we're going to go through 22 weeks of this, I'm going to be the guy who's always cheering on everybody. Yeah. And so I would like pat people on the butt as we're running towers. I'd be like, hey, we can do this. We, you know, let's go, let's go. So I kind of became the cheerleader.
0: Were you rewarded for that at the end? Um, we we,
1: got, we got votes. One guy, it was him and I that got like super boot. And I guess he beat me out by a couple votes. Okay. Super good guy. Would never take anything away from him. Yeah. But we kind of... I was right there, I guess. Apparently, yeah. but it wasn't really ever my goal to sure. obtain any award. It was like, hey, I'm I'm doing okay. I'm gonna make sure everybody else is doing okay now mm-hmm. throughout the rest of the academy. Even one point in the academy, I started having so much fun. I was just like, I'm gonna challenge these captains to a, a like a hose throw, and they they've all got big egos. And so I was like, hey, I want to challenge you guys, you know, to a hose throw. And they're like, oh, really? So I was like, why don't you set up two cones as far down the blacktop as you want and I'll throw this hose and I'll make it roll right between the cones and they started to laugh they started to laugh and then I get these guys everyone watching me they're like Billings you got some balls man and I was just like (laughs) I can do this because I'm thinking they're going to set it up maybe 15 feet away 20 they went like almost the full length of the hose like 50 50 feet away and they they set the cones literally as I'm not kidding you maybe 15 inches apart And I was like, oh, that's great. You ass wipes. You're setting me up to fail so I look like an idiot in front of my whole class for challenging you, right? So I was like, okay. Okay, I'll show you. And at that point, you know, I was kind of, on my ego, I was like, man, this is going to suck if I miss this in front of everyone. I challenge these captains. So I line up. I was like, okay, let's go. Let's go. And so I line it up. I rear back and I throw that hose. And it kind of goes offline a little bit. It starts to veer to the right. And I was like, oh no. And then she starts to pull center again and pull back left and it rolled right through those fricking cones. <laughs> right awesome. through the middle of those 15 inch cones. And I'm not kidding you. It, you would have thought we won the Super Bowl. Every kid in that class, we were like, yeah. I mean, it was just like all like all at once we're jumping up and down. And I was like shooting guns at the captain. So I was like, yeah, yeah. And because I had challenged him, I was just like, if i make this i don't have to run any more towers you can't punish me with any more towers and they're like okay so they wanted me to fail while i made it through and i was like running around shooting guns like i was a wild gunslinger and so they're like okay you don't have to run towers but everyone's gonna run them for you and so they ended up winning in the end because they set me up to where i won but they weren't gonna let me win but i was at that point i felt comfortable enough i was like hey if I'm going to be in here another nine weeks, I'm going to have a little bit of fun with it. Sure. Were you married to
0: Mindy? Yeah, I was married to Mindy. So you'd go home every night, but you yeah. to
1: be home. And we just had our first son. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I would go home and come back. So we would come in the morning at six in the morning, just after six. And literally, you would kind of, I always tell everybody, you'd be driving down, it was Wilmot Road, you'd turn off the freeway, get on Wilmot Road, and you would immediately get IBS. You'd yeah. get like irritable bowel syndrome. You'd have to take immediate, <laughs> like it never failed. As soon as I turned right onto Wilmot Road, I'd have to take a dump. And so I would like oh gosh and it wasn't just me it was everybody everybody so it was, the, it was, the, it was the, so the, yeah so it was like as soon as we get to the to the the Academy everybody be running into the stalls and everybody like, oh gosh I can't handle this because we all be nervous what was gonna happen that day so one one day I walked in and I walked in and there's a stall and all the stalls are full and I'm like guys you come on I walked up to a stall and I go you're the worst smelling Human being, worst piece of shit I've ever smelled in my life. And one of the captains stood up out of the stall. And he's like, really, Bill? Really? That's what you think of me? And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry, sir. I didn't think you would use our stalls. That's awesome. At that point, they had it out for me, right? They had, and they always knew I was kind of like jokester. And I was yeah. like, work. So at one point, I had to take a dump. And it was like 6.50. And we had to line up at 7.00 and i wasn't anywhere near the bathroom so i had to run back into our locker area and i've taken a dump and i was in a rush and i'm like trying to get d- done and i lean over and they had metal dispensers and i just ripped my leg open on the metal dispenser starts just <laughs> draining blood all down my leg and i'm like son of a bit what am i going to so i'm like i don't have time to treat it so i run back out of the run back out to the pad i barely get there like 659 i line up we have to stand at attention. You we're all pants or shorts. Shorts. shorts okay. So we're all standing in shorts. I'm lined up. We're all lined up by alphabetical order. I'm standing there. There's blood just rolling, de- just <laughs> running down my leg, and I, I'm not going to say anything about it. And I just have a big old gash in my leg because the metal dispenser ripped. And the captains they walk around from person to person, like, "Tell me a fact this morning, Billings." You know this. Is, so you know that's what they do every day. Yeah. And so they walk up and they're like, "Billings." what the hell happened to you this morning? I was all, well, sir, I don't really want to tell you, sir. And he goes, well, you have to tell me. So I was like, sir, I was taking a dump this morning and trying to wipe my bottom. And I leaned over too far and ripped my leg open on the dispenser, sir. And he goes, are you a total idiot, Billings? So he was like, everyone was laughing. They were standing at attention. They're all laughing behind me. I had to go get it dressed up. We were in, we were getting a lecture and at the end of the day, we were sitting together and they're like, well, we just, we had a special award we wanted to present to someone today. They said, Billings, come on up. And they had this trophy. It was like a soccer football trophy for a kid trophy. And they had a roll of toilet paper stuffed over its head. And they would <laughs> say, we wanted to present you this trophy for getting injured in the line of duty. And it was D-O-O-D-Y, yeah. duty. And so they handed it to me in front of the class. Yeah. And they're like, take this home with you. And so funny do, stuff do you like still that. Have that. Uh No, no. Yeah. I, I, I chucked it out the window on the way home. But I mean, it was like, <laughs> I mean, it was funny stuff like that all the time at the academy. By the end, it was like I was trying to be a little more lighthearted and enjoy it. Whereas in the beginning, you were just stressed every day. After that, I was on fire for a year. They took us out of uh, the field and we went through seven months of Paramedic school at the University of Arizona. Yeah. And so that was full time. I was 40 hours a week.
0: Yeah. But then after that you still served as a firefighter
1: Firefighter for for six more months. Six months. Okay. And then I was promoted to medic.
0: You told me privately that you were hazed a lot.
1: Well, I mean, my my thing was that I ended up I ended up getting to a station with 10 guys, and my captain, he wasn't a super nice guy. Let's just put I mean to, to say the least. So he wrote me about a lot of things. And then my engineer, he was really an egotistical guy. So I mean, from the moment I got there, he had me shining ax handles like for hours on end every day when I knew how to be doing chores in the station. And they had me memorizing every, like if you had a ladder truck, you know, you think of how many compartments there are in it. They had me memorizing what was in every compartment.
0: So if you're not actually working, you get back to the station, the guys that have been there a while, or they kind of just do their thing, and they're like, okay, well, we got to get the, this boot billing stuff. Yeah. We got to fill his time. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And they're supposed
1: to be training me, right? Yeah. And yeah. fire sure. stuff. But it ended up being, you know, I'm standing there for hours on end, shining an axe handle, a wooden axe handle. Useless and, stuff. Yeah, useless stuff. And then I memorized everything that was in the compartments of the ladder truck. Mm-hmm. But I came back, and then they, just like the academy, they said, no, I want to know the amount Of every single thing in that compartment and then every call at night we had a big dorm at that point we all slept in bunks just next to each other Mm -hmm. and every call for every truck I would have to get up and open their bay doors and go press the button and then press the button when they left and close it and then try to go back to bed Mm -hmm. we would run races I remember a guy saying he 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 was a walk-on at U of A this is my engineer again he was a cornerback so he was super fast and he was just like, I'm gonna challenge you to a sprint. And I was just like, Oh, come on, man. I don't <laughs> want it. And he goes, So I want us to sprint, you know, down the driveway. It was like 80 yards, maybe. Yeah. And he goes, I'm I'm so fast, I'm gonna walk, I'm gonna torch you. And I remember thinking, dude, this is man, I already have enough. And I was kind of my reputation preceded me as I was a little bit of a jokester. Everyone thought I had an ego because I was strong and physically fit. Yeah. I, it, that wasn't it, it was always a challenge to me. But I was like, whatever man. So we line up at the bottom of the driveway, the whole crew, all guys, nine guys are standing out there watching, right? And he's just like, go. And I, I torch him by like 15, 20 feet. He's like, <laughs> oh, that's the most ridiculous, I slipped. That's the most ridiculous thing. I'm faster than you. And he's yelling, he's walking around. Of course it pissed him off that I beat him. Yeah. But I'm like, everything I do in life, I'm trying as hard as I can, right? Yeah. So um, he's like, I wanna go back and do it again. So, you know, I was like, well, not today. Let's maybe another. So it's like the next shift, my crew, they line up again outside.
0: What does the crew actually think of this guy?
1: I, I, they think he's an A-wipe, right? Yeah. They really do because he's so egotistical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's one of those guys that never shuts up. He's always talking about how good he is. And so they have an American flag they're holding this time. And so we line up. He says, go. I torch him again. As I run by, they, they hand me the American flag and I'm holding up the American flag <laughs> over my head as I'm running around. I mean, I'm going to rub it right in his face yeah. this time. You know, I'm running around with it over my head and being like, thank you. Thank you. I'm just <laughs> eating up his ego, you mm-hmm. know, and I'm running back and forth in front of him. That's kind of like we used to have hose rolling races where they would lay out hose and then we would get the hose rolling and we would see who could roll it the fastest. And I was real fast. Yeah. But at one point they stuck a piece of large wood. Into my hose, so when I got to the, like you know 20, 30 feet in, the hose just went and it just hit the wood, and I couldn't roll up anymore. Basically, I walked out into a door from the outside, and then I walked back out, and they dumped a bucket of water on me from up overhead. So I went ahead and I took out all of his clothes out of his locker, and I probably shouldn't have done this, but I took everything he owned out He's of his the locker. Dumped water on you. Yeah, yeah, the engineer. <laughs> I took all of his contents out of his locker, all of his clothes, all of his stuff his personal stuff and i dumped it into a pile in the back and i just took a fire hose to it (laughs) and i started spraying it and just got it completely soaked and destroyed half of it well then i locked my locker thinking they couldn't get to my stuff well there were little vent holes and he took a fire extinguisher and emptied a fire (laughs) extinguisher into my locker and so it kind of built up it started you know at some point you start realizing we're gonna it's going to escalate into a fist fight. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, so I had to kind of back down at some point. But there was always little funny hazing things. But my, my biggest thing I took from from my boot years, I, I really learned what what a good leader is versus a poor leader. And my, my captain was a very, very poor leader because he didn't lead by example. There are those who seek power. Sure. And there are those who are, power is gifted to them. Yeah. And I think the ones that make the best leaders are... The ones when you have the power and responsibility that's gifted to them, they don't necessarily seek it out. But there are a lot of people out there that seek out power over people and they don't necessarily earn sure. or deserve it. Sure. So I think he was one of those that was always trying to show everybody that he had the power over you. And I absolutely know for sure his crew didn't respect him. You had to listen to him simply because he had the, the rank over you. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you ran into that a lot in mm-hmm. yours where you had guys where you're like, they're higher rank and you wanted to punch them in the face. Sure. But you had to do what they said because of their rank.
0: Is, you know, is there a rank structure being a paramedic or
1: Yeah, this firefighters, the lowest rank, okay. and then engineer paramedic, and then you had captain, and then you had
0: battalion chief. So you re- you remained a paramedic, so you just never got to captain. No, so I you didn't just really. Never cared uh well, captain
1: was more kind of administrative, yeah. overseeing the crew and the station, mm-hmm. and, you know, running the scene on fires, sure. disciplinary stuff, reviews. I just loved being in the middle, in the back of the medic truck. Um, so
0: by choice, you stayed paramedic. Just because yeah, I like never,
1: it. I never really, never had a desire to be captain. I mean, I thought about it a couple times, but I just really loved serving people and helping people and being in the middle of the heat. But no, I don't care what anybody says. Paramedic had a hundred times more responsibility than any other position. Yeah. I mean, ninety percent of our calls in the city were medical. Mm-hmm. You were the go-to person.
0: When it was a fire and no, no casualties were involved, would you just become a firefighter? Yeah. Okay. So we had a dual role.
1: So we had turnouts in the medic truck and we would go to the fire, turn out, and then go to the fire. Yeah. And so we would get assigned certain roles at fires. Um, and a lot of times we were rehab because they wanted the medics to check out the firefighters. Um, but then other times we would, other crews, the captains would have you go in. But that was my role for all 20 years. And, it, it, you know, I got, you know, pretty high in seniority in the, in the medic rank. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's really tough to have a moral compass that always points true north, right? Sure. Because guys, I had guys on the job say to me, well, it's a matter of opinion. And I never really thought that truth in life was a matter of opinion. I yeah, always thought truth sure. truth was really black and white, right? Yeah. You, you either lie or you don't lie, or you cheat well, or you a, don't cheat. It's a thing cheat. we
0: can tell ourselves to um, avoid being ethical when it's yes. convenient.
1: And, and it's a way, to I think, to allow yourself to justify your actions and to li- sure. be able to live with yourself otherwise it's too hard emotionally to say I was I was unethical or immoral yeah. so I always prided myself on being the the, the most well trained most well studied and tried to be the, the most ethical medic I could even in the middle of the night two in the morning where you had someone who was saying chest pain you didn't try to talk about of going to the hospital you're like okay hey let's just go let's take you even though it sucked it was going to be an hour from the call to the hospital, paperwork and back. You did what was right. And so I always pr- prided myself mm-hmm. on trying to do what was right. Whereas I saw firsthand guys acting consistently unethically because of their selfish nature. Yeah. Because they were tired. Um, and, and it rubbed some people wrong. I would call them out and be like, hey, we can't do that. That's, I'm sorry. That's, I'm not going to let that happen. But I think at some point, you know, my captain said to me when I retired that day, um, he had been on a long time, and uh, he, he said to me, they, they kind of gave me an axe, which was nice. But he said to me, he goes, well, you're one of the, the top couple medics I've ever worked with. You know, I just want to let you know that. So to me,
0: awesome.
1: to me, it wasn't, I didn't ever want accolades or awards or, I, I, I mean, but to hear that leaving, it, it kind of boded well for what you, you yeah. did or held yourself to. And my, my standard was not anybody else's, it was always my own. My own standard. I had a very, very high drive. Very, very high moral standard. Um, And I always wanted to do things that were right. But I wanted to be able to live more so live with myself when I went home that day with a clear conscience. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to go home and be able to think freely and just be a father and a husband without having to think back, well, did I do that right? Or am I going to get, you know, called to the carpet? You know, did I you know blah, blah 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 you know an example after example you know so that that's kind of the way I always rolled in my career and I think you know it kept me in a good place and I was told everybody I was like if you if you have a reason for why you're doing something you're gonna end up pretty good in life don't just do things for the sake of doing them yeah. but have have a, an ethical educationally backed reason but why you do something you're gonna end up pretty good in life you know so I tried to be that guy where I studied a lot always refreshed and always had a reason for taking action because there were some things they were just judgment calls in the back of the truck. Hey, this, this patient's dying and I don't know what's working. This patient's dying. Well, let's try this because of this. So that's, that's the way I always approach things. Uh, I, just, I just loved being a medic, that's absolutely awesome. loved being a medic.
0: I've been using Isagenix since 2017. These products have made a world of difference in my quality of life, health, energy, muscle definition, strength, and endurance. My bread and butter products have been the Daily Essential Multivitamins with isogenesis, which is a telomere support supplement, the Isolane Meal Replacement Shake, the Tri-Release Protein Shake, the Collagen, the Green Drink, and the Cleanse for Life support system. However, Isagenix, as many products and can cater to your unique lifestyle and goals click the link in the show notes or visit nmp.isagenix.com that's nmp.isagenix.com to find out more besides just using the products there is an option to partner with me and the company to build your own business with no capital upfront. You can do as little as pay for your products and as much as making a full-time income. I love these products and will use them the rest of my life. You can also message me if you have any questions.
1: One of the most gruesome calls that I had gone on, and that's not necessarily Funny, but we had a, a drug lord that the SWAT team was called into, and they apparently busted in his door, and he opened up fire on them. Apparently, I, I think it was a handgun or something. Well, they had high high power rifles, and mm-hmm. uh, they they were gonna win. Yeah. Well, when we got called there, it was just called to a shooting, and we got called to a backside room, maybe 12 by 14 size room, and he was laying on the on the floor, uh, face up. Uh, we walked in. And I'm not kidding you. All the police and all the SWAT were like pinned against the wall. Like <laughs> like the floor had something, you know, cooties on it. But then I looked down at the flare. They were pinned against the like wall with their arms like, you guys come on in. Like they did not. I was like, what the hell are you guys doing? And then I looked down and this guy was blown up. I mean, there was blood probably covering 85% of floor, a lot of blood. Yeah. And apparently they had opened up fire on him. They had shot once blown apart his, I think his right arm, but then they shot him through the abdomen. And I, I mean, I, I'm not real good with guns and high power rifles and uh, the bullets, but apparently he's so high powered, it went through his abdomen, but it ended up pulling pulling all of his abdominal contents out the other hole of his So his abdomen wasn't blown open. It was one hole to the other, but all of his intestine was pulled out. I can't say all, but there was probably seven feet of it pulled out of the other side onto the ground Yeah. and there was blood everywhere. And there, ju- they were just like, hurry, you know, like they, they were like ghost white F- SWAT police. And this yeah, guy goes white cause they, because of the, the blood, the yeah, blood. Yeah. yeah. And everything they had seen, they could, not I mean, and this ain't any slight against police, but right. We always said that if you wanted anything physically done, you call fire. If you wanted anything, you know, anybody to handle like a critical situation, like we always thought that fire was best. Now, obviously in the situations with burglaries and shoot, I mean, on their side, police are fantastic, but we always kind of had this friendly rivalry, right? And uh, we respected the hell out of police and they respected fire, but we always thought, emotionally they we always said police were soft we're like they're soft right when we did pt we, we trained for an hour and a half when they did pt they ran a quarter mile yeah, yeah. and they had a line of six seven casualty people that were on light duty because they injured themselves on a the half mile of the day before yeah. right so anyway so we walked in i was like what are you guys and then i looked down i was like oh that's a lot of blood but i was like i'll handle it so we, we well, basically, it
0: wasn't even a thing to you.
1: No, I mean, well, I mean, I had a job to do. Good I mean, I'm walking team. in blood and boots. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I'll clean up later. And, and it's not like it's not like you're like, oh, wow, this is so much fun. But it's like, okay, <laughs> we got a job to do. So I walked over in the blood, and we're trying to piece together his arm. And he's he's conscious, and he's Spanish-speaking. He's talking. Yeah. We wrap his – I just grab his abdominal contents, his, his intestine, and I just throw it onto his abdomen. I pick it up and try to, like – If you can imagine like slimy, squirmy, jelly, like guts, that's what it, and then we picked it up. We just throw it on his abdomen, just grab him, sit him up. I just grabbed like gauze, like heavy duty gauze and pads and wrapped him up and got his guts pressed against his abdomen. We got a line going. We loaded him up on the gurney and then just went code three to the hospital. But he was talking, talking the whole way, you
0: know? It's incredible. Um, They can, they can have that much trauma in their... Still conscience, still yeah, confident. and I
1: think, I think, you know, to some degree, adrenaline kicks in on their yeah. end. You know, your vasculature constricts, and you're getting everything to your vital organs, your brain, your heart, you know, mm-hmm. and your lungs. And so, but I remember another guy who was on a, he was kind of like a biker dude, one of those typical biker dudes. Yeah. And we were on Pima. We, we got a call to a, basically like, car and the motorcycle. And um, he got a car that pulled in front of him, and he T-boned the car, and he went over the top. I remember getting there to him. He's laying on the ground. He's talking to us. And these and people always know when they're going to die. They will tell you 100% of the time. I'm going to... Like he got there. He's like, oh gosh, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And I was like, no, not not right now. Not right now. And I remember taking off his shoe. And he must have caught his shoe either on a piece of the metal of the car yeah. or on the bike. His foot was just torn apart. Like literally ripped open. And it was... Cadaver white, and there was no blood. And I was, I remember looking at his foot going, Oh, you're gonna die. And what does that mean? Means basically, he shunted everything to his core. Okay, so, so he I, had no blood flow to his extremities. There was literally does
0: no happened because of shock. Yes, because of shock. So the and body's so in shock, it doesn't necessarily need to do it, but it just goes under it shock. Well,
1: the, bo- the body innately will shunt blood away from anything that doesn't absolutely need it, yeah. to everything that does. And so he had hit his chest and caused basically blood to start to fill up in his chest around his heart. Okay. And so the, the body was going into shock. He was losing blood internally. Okay. And he had just ripped. I mean, I'm not shredded his foot. And I remember looking down at his foot. I was at his head and I was looking down at his foot going, oh, yeah, you're going to die. And I remember thinking, I didn't say, it, but he kept saying, repeating over. It's kind of eerie when you know you're in those final moments. Yeah. So we got him in the hospital and they cracked his chest and he it instantly bled out and wow. died. But I mean, they, they know, they it's know. Serious. So, I mean, we had guys like that all the time. On the funnier side, you know, we've had, we've had stuff where, you know, I, I've shared with people before. We had like a silly stuff where you have like an 80-year-old woman. She was on the, on the toilet at home. And, you know, she's trying to clean herself up after. And she slipped in between the toilet and the tub, which is about, you know, maybe 14 inches apart. Mm-hmm. And she wedged herself perfectly. So her, her, her butt was wedged towards the tub and her hips were wedged in between the, the toilet and the tub. Okay. And she was there. We got called for a fall. She had been there for about 24 hours. Who finally found her? I don't know yeah. if it was a neighbor or some someone did a welfare check okay. or a family member that came over, yeah. but she had been stuck there and it's like her ass had melted into the tub. And we had like three guys. I'm not kidding you. I was pulling as hard as humanly possible. So at some point my captain's all, you're going to have to go get some Vaseline and lube her up, Billings. I was like, lube her up. So I was just like... Oh my gosh! So I got—I'm the young guy, right? I'm like taking handfuls of Vaseline and I'm rubbing it I, on her between her privates and her butt cheeks and the and the wall of the tub, and she's just looking over, smiling at me, and I'm like, "Are you really doing this, right?" Some young, some young guys rubbing your chonch <laughs> it's just I mean I was trying to look I mean of course I'm like almost throwing up in my mouth because I'm like you don't want to see an 80 year old woman naked yeah you don't want to but I'm like trying to lube up her butt cheeks and we finally got her like dislodged but I it literally felt like her ass had melted into the tub another one I you know I was like I was a medic at this point and we had a, a larger woman I mean larger breasted woman and she had chest pain and so we're you know there's six of us on the crew I was, and you know, listen, my brain works like a squirrel. So I get distracted. So I hear little <laughs> things off to the side. I hear conversations. I start to look around, but I'm doing a 12 lead on this lady and I have to, you know, have to expose her. But then I'm, you know, she's got very large breasts and I lift up her breast, you know, with my forearm and I, you know, I put the, the electrodes on and I put them around her chest. And, and so we get her in a place. I say, you know, man, sit nice and still. And so we get a picture of her heart, you know, then I start to get, you know, lose focus and so I'm looking at the monitor, you know, looking away from her. And then I look back and then I hear a conversation off the side. and I'm starting to pull. We have little clips that clip into the leads, yeah. little clips that go click, click. And so I'm pulling them off. I pull them off her sternum and then her middle chest. And then I'm pulling on one and I can't get it to come loose. And I'm looking at my crew looking away and I'm pulling and I'm pulling and I finally look back and I was pulling on her nipple <laughs> and I was just like, oh my gosh. And she was smiling at me, going, "That's okay. I'm enjoying this." And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I "Once again, I was like one of those, you know, really awkward moments." I'm like, "I'm so sorry, man. I just... So, you know, you try. It's like one of those where you try to run and hide." I mean, there are lots of, lots of funny stories, you know. But there are there are lots of very, very, very tragic stories, you know. Sure. Infants dying, um, young young kids and traumatic injuries dying. I you know I remember a car full of girls got T-boned in a major intersection by a, a Ford F-150 at a very high rate of speed. Ninety-nine point nine percent of the calls you forget as soon as you're done. But I remember this one it was just embedded like the truck was embedded into the side of the car. And I remember looking in initially and just feeling this overwhelming sense of kind of doom. Mm-hmm. Like the one girl was had died instantly. The other girl was unconscious and the unconscious in the front, and another one was injured in the driver's side. That was a, the side away from the vehicle striking it. But we couldn't get the the truck dislodged from the car. And my engineer ended up jumping in the truck and ended up trying to drive the truck. Well, it ended up kind of starting to roll the car. Wow. And so we were trying to figure out. I was like starting to yell. I was yelling across the car because the car started moving. And I didn't want it to roll, start rolling away with these girls. So he's he had just jumped in and was thinking kind of, Emotionally, but it ended up pulling the truck away. The car kind of surged, but it ended up stopping. You know, at that point you're triaging, you know, young girls who's worth saving. And I remember in those moments in your mind, just you're thinking, how do I decide who's worth saving? Cause I didn't know the one was dead, 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 right? Yeah. It, she looked dead and the other one looked dead as well. I mean, you know, so you're all, the other one looked very, very, you know, injured. So you start thinking in your mind, well, who, who you decide who lives and who doesn't, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's that split second. Who do I grab to help first? Yeah. You know, you you know, you put your hand on. No, she's she's gone. You know, and then, well, she still has a faint pulse. The other one's unconscious, but you know, moving. You know, you know, semi-conscious. And sure. so those those type of calls where you you just are so so. I remember that, and I think that's what I love most about being a medic is. You're so hyper-focused. It's like you you never feel more alive than at those moments where it's just adrenaline, but hyper, hyper-focused where you literally could process, you know, 100 things at once. Mm-hmm. I remember after that call, a lot of the guys were really shaken up. But in the fire world, you just never, it, I don't know, it's an unspoken rule. But no one wants to relive the trauma, yeah. right? So I remember we, we went back to the station. We had a debriefing. And it's like... It's like sitting in a room with 10 alpha dudes and then a therapist coming in and saying, do you all want to talk about this? And everyone just sitting silent going, no, no. And then like the therapy, you know, like let's express our feelings. And you're like, who the hell wants to sit and relive that the call? Happen? Yeah. We had to go yeah. back to the station. They're like, well, we're going to have a debriefing. Because it was, I mean, it was very overwhelming emotionally.
0: It a debriefing just with the captain. No, stuff.
1: it was all of us in a family room all sitting together. Just the ones on the call. All, yeah, but we were all pretty much there. I mean, right? Because yeah. we had multiple crews there. So we're all supposed to sit down and have like a what, come to Jesus moment yeah. or kumbaya. <laughs> and the therapist is like, let's all tell tell each other how we're feeling right now. And you're like, I don't want to think about that. <laughs> I don't want to think about those things. I just want to move on. Right? And so you sit there awkwardly for a half hour and no one says a word because that, that's, that's fire life. It's like,
0: do you think that even though you wouldn't say a word is that something that you're going to have to work out later? Yes, yeah, life? it
1: yeah. right feelings. I mean, I was sent a book one time and I laughed when I got the book, but it is true. It said the, the title of the book was Feelings Buried Alive Never Die. Yeah. They don't they don't go away. They just resurface at some point with yeah. with addiction or depression yeah. or suicidality yeah. or some other violence. I I think like for me The suppressing of a lot of emotion for a very long time, I started to develop a lot of, I just, like, I really can't explain it at first. I didn't understand. I thought I was going crazy. But then later on in my career, I would talk to guys, and I realized that it was every single one of us. It was, I couldn't tolerate loud noises. I couldn't be in crowds anymore. I didn't really like socializing anymore I like I would see go to my kids games and I would see a crowd of parents talking and I couldn't get myself to physically manifest myself to walk over and talk to them because I, it was just like I was so overwhelmed emotionally all the time that I couldn't, I couldn't have any more input in in my private life. I I didn't feel anything emotionally. I was just like, just kind of dead to the world. My kids would fall I remember, I remember Peyton one time, he blew his finger off with a high-powered like, pellet gun. And so they're out in the backyard shooting and it's a high-powered, and he comes back to the glass door and he's got his thumb over the, over the barrel. And I don't know this, right? And, and my daughter, who's like two, she walks over and the, guns, the butt of the gun is on the ground. She walks over and presses the trigger and it blows the pellet through his finger. And she goes, I shot you. And like she's telling him, she's two years old, blows apart his thumb. And he comes in the house and I, I, I remember thinking he's really upset, and I f- literally felt nothing. And he's just like he's over the sink, and I go, "Let's clean it up." Let's. And he starts to pass out. He's like, Ugh. and I was like, "Come on, man, suck it up." And my and Min, you know, Minnie was like, "You're a real, you're a real a-hole." And I remember at that point, you know, I'm like, eleven, twelve, maybe eleven years into it, twelve years into it. Yeah. I remember thinking, huh, maybe I am. <laughs> I always said like fire was like a, your life was like an onion and it peeled away the layers of your life a little, little bit at a time. Mm -hmm. You just never all at once. You didn't really see it coming, but 10 years down the road, you don't recognize yourself. It's like a slow fade. Like it just slowly peeled away the layers of your life. And by 12 years in, 13 years in, I didn't even recognize myself. Interesting. Every time I would hear a child scream or Mindy would come in, let's say from work, she worked shifts at night. Uh, for weddings and she would come in and the door would go like that, you know, cr- you know, creak. I would jump out of bed and feel violent. Yeah, I had no idea why. Just this rush of just pent up aggression and violence. And I remember telling Mindy, I was like, I, I don't know what's going on. I-, I, I don't feel the same anymore, but I don't know. I think it's just me, but it was perpetual stimulation with chronic exhaustion that just wore you down, you know? So I got to the point where I was like, maybe 14 years into my career, 15 years in, all I ever thought about, literally, I'm not kidding, 24 hours a day was how to get more sleep. Literally every single moment of every day, how can I get a nap? How can I get some rest? Like I said before, I was barely existing at that point. And Mindy had the strength to walk up to me. One day I was sitting on the edge of the bed and I was remember I was in front of my dresser on the edge of the bed and I was just staring at the dresser. And she walked over and she goes, do something now. And I was just like, what are you talking about? What, she goes, change now. Get to a new station now. And I was just like, it must, like for her to say something, cause she's pretty easy going, right? For her to say something, she must have seen like something really, really big. And I think I was just perpetually depressed and exhausted. And so, a slower station opened up shortly after, and I, I, I won it because I was real senior by that point. And it was like life-changing, like life-changing. Like I got more rest. I started to feel energy again. Just I, a lot of, you didn't have as many night calls. No, n- that was the night work. calls were the big thing, but it was like perpetual night calls. But at that station, you got a lot of rest and a lot oh, of naps, nice. yeah. and I felt I felt a lot better. So like my PTSD, it started to, you know, I call it simmer down. You know like I could handle more noises and talk to people more and be in crowds a little bit better it started to kind of fade a little bit but it's still never it's still never like fully ever leaves you I still feel it to some degree mm-hmm. but now that I'm retired and you know I get sleep regularly I don't feel it as much there are times when I get tired that I feel like sensitivity to noises and crowds and things come back before I retired I spent several years talking to different guys and I realized it was a chronic, chronic syndrome with fire and police and military. These guys were... So you thought you were the only one for a while.
0: Oh, a long time. And then you started talking to them. I
1: started asking guys at this one station. I started hearing guys losing their wives. One guy's wife left him, then another guy, then another guy, then a... And I, I, it was like four guys I was talking to. And they would... One was... Two... One or two had been stationed with me. Then others that I just talked to. My wife, she's like, I'm done. You're you're no use to anybody. I'm done. And they left them. Other guys were on the verge of killing themselves. Um, Other guys would drink. They would take sleeping meds. They were severe depression. I had one guy tell me one time, his wife was talking about leaving him. This was about a year before I retired. And he said, I sat at the edge of my bed the other night with a gun and I was going to take my life. He goes, but I decided not to. And I'm like... What do you do what do you, what do you do with a guy like that? you If I say anything to anybody, his career's gone. He's gone they, they, They'll take him off the job. But if I don't then he takes his life. Sure. I mean you know so it's like I'm walking around with that heavy weight and he, I mean he came back and he's like, I, I, you know I'm not going to, but I started to realize more and more everybody was medicating themselves with something, either alcohol or drugs, going out and partying yeah. You know, going around with women. I mean, it it was anything to get rid of the trauma that they had always seen and buried. And so I realized that it was just a a chronic, chronic problem that we did not deal with very well in the fire.
0: What did you do to finally deal with it, if you have, and then uh, what made the biggest difference?
1: For me, well, when I left, when I retired, I thought it was going to be easy going. Well, I retired and went full-time nursing because I was a nurse, and I went into... COVID. It was 2020. And mm-hmm. I was working in ER and I was charging nurse almost every day. And it was just an onslaught of just massive, massive stress. Before I knew it, I was running like five different units instead of one. Was it worse than the fire department? Oh, 100 times worse. It was 13 hours of nonstop every day of one mask with a second mask over it with goggles. Then we had <laughs> wearing these Pappers, like like incubator suits yeah. for 13 hours on blacktop and tents yeah. in the parking lot in summer. And I was like, this sucks, man. And But it was the huge, huge stress. So all of my PTSD came back. I couldn't, I got to the point where I couldn't even talk to anybody. I wasn't sleeping. I realized that for me, and I sank into a deep, deep depression. Because I think it was one one of it was leaving the fire and losing your identity as a firefighter, yeah. and then the second was the heavy heavy ramping up of COVID, in the ER and dealing with the administration and yeah. the staff. And as much as I didn't want to, I had to I had to leave that environment. So for me, it was getting rest, and then the, my exercise has always been very very critical, and then leaving that high high stress environment. Because I realized as I aged. I as I was like 48, 49 that you're not as resilient as you are at 20. You don't recover physically, but you don't recover emotionally. I realized it was probably time to tap out of critical care and go into something a little less stressful. But this the sleep, getting regular sleep and then exercise has just been an absolute saving grace for me
0: because yeah, I, 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 I sometimes I'm just I have those you know, anger issues. Just stress of life and then I go to the gym, I just destroy myself in the gym. I come back a completely different yes. person.
1: Absolutely, it's like, and I hate to say it, but it's really almost like bipolar or Jekyll and Hyde. <laughs> I, I literally will feel, and Minnie will see it, I will feel myself building in the morning and getting a lot of angst and a lot of aggression. Yeah. And I'll be like, I, I gotta go work out now. And she's like, yeah, go, go. And I come back and I'm like, totally different person. Yep. And like I, my, I was talking to my dad this week. He's an uh, ex-military officer. But he said one of his saving graces was always exercise too. Even now at 80, he's like, I can't function with my ankle because he, he traumatized his ankle several years back. He's like, I can't really walk very well. He goes, but if I don't exercise, I'm going to screw myself into the ground. Yeah. Those were his words like three days, two days ago. He goes, I'll screw myself into the ground if I can't exercise. Even at 80. So I don't know if it runs in the genes or just military and, you know, police. And, like, you just, like, he always learned to deal with it through exercise. So your biggest difference was sleep, rest, and exercise. <clears throat> and I think leaving the super, the high, high stress environment, the high stress job, yeah. The body can only deal with so much stress for so many decades, right? Mm-hmm. And then it, at some point, it's going to turn on you. I used to think, like, if you talked about your emotions... Or if you showed emotions, it was, it was a weakness. I had one guy say to me, he goes, I tried to open up to the 10 guys at the station the other day about something I was having a really hard time with, and they all laughed at me. He goes, I'll never talk to anybody again. I think that's part of the persona, the alpha male, is you don't show emotion, you just bottle it and go, right? And that's kind of the way, you know, to some degree, my dad was always, he's just like, well, you deal with it. Deal with it, suck it up, man. And to that, I do have some of that, but I've learned more now that it is okay to talk about some of the things you're scared about. It is okay to talk about some of the things you're struggling with. They say misery loves company, but to know that somebody else is walking through a very tough road with you is comforting to know that you're not the only one that's the freak in the world, that you're not the only one that's depressed, that you're not the only one that has aggression problems that you're not the only one who raises his voice. That you're not the only one who needs da 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 da, right? That so for me to talk to other guys and it was like the therapy room was like the like literally the bathroom area like cuz everyone would shave, right? They'd go in there in the morning, we would all shave and start talking. I would sit on the counter, talk to several guys for hours and they just talked and talked and, and like cuz they wanted to get it off their chest. But they had no one to talk to about their wives leaving them, about the problems, the struggles, the emotional. And i just sit on the counter as they were shaving. And they would literally, I, I can't i can't even tell you, hours. And I was like, well, I'm okay with this. I'm okay. They need this, right? Yeah, I agree. Knowing that you're not walking through life alone is helpful. You know? I agree. That there are other guys. I think other dudes, like many would always be like, well, how was the day? It was good. I don't want to talk about it. Like, what am I going to sit down with her as much as I love her and say, well, you know, you know, when you go on those code calls or a traumatic calls and you see like how she, she can't relate. But to talk to somebody else who lives it and walks it, that means something. And then to hear them say, hey, I'm really struggling too. You're not alone. That, that meant a lot to me because then I'm like, okay, I'm broken, but it's not just me and I can, we can help each other. But there wasn't a whole lot of that going on in the fire service. It was more like everybody was just, like we walked by each other, but we wouldn't really stop and talk to each other, you know? It was more like isolating when you're tired and going through a lot, rather than coming together and talking about things.
0: Some of the traumatic things I've gone through, after the trauma, a therapist or a program told me, like, you're this is normal. Yeah. That just made me feel okay. Yeah, I'm not a psychopath. Yeah, this is supposed to happen to people that go through this type of trauma. Yes, uh, yeah. That's...
1: And I remember walking for years. and I'm not kidding you, years on end. Going, I'm the only one that's broken. All these guys are normal. I'm the only one that's broken. All these guys are normal. And they're
0: thinking, they're th- they're thinking the same thing. Yeah.
1: Until you sit down and talk, and you realize, dude's medicating with alcohol, sleeping meds. Yeah. You know, other drugs. Who knows what to get through life. His wife left him. Holy shit, man. This is, this is a chronic syndrome. I mean, this is a chronic, chronic problem. You know, and I realize there are certain guys, you know, one guy, after he left the department, he hung himself. There were other guys talking about killing themselves, the other guys medicating, and I realized, what are we doing to take care of each other? Well, not a whole lot. When you're on the job, you're basically just existing and trying to survive. You don't have any room for anybody else. Oh, tell me your problems.
0: You don't have any room for that. You're, you're dealing with all your own problems. Which is unfortunate because that's the very solution that's going to to help with those problems. But then we're thinking that way. And so we're avoiding it. But yeah. that's the very thing that we actually need to overcome the problem. Yeah. So it's and if you show weakness, unfortunate.
1: then are they going to trust you in a critical situation? I'm really struggling, man. Can you listen to me? Cause I, well, what about when the shit hits the fan? Are they really gonna trust you? Or are they gonna say, well, this guy's weak, he's gonna break? That's another component that plays in too. For me, learning that the struggle is real for one, very, very real. And I remember after I retired, I hit and then that COVID hit and I was charging her, so I was talking to a, a co-worker of mine, her husband was a captain on our department. And I remember just talking with her in a room one day, and I remember all this major, major stress and depression coming back, and I just started crying. And I said, I I'm just, I'm not doing so well, Teresa, and I I just feel so screwed up right now. And she goes, Scott, there's a lot of guys, when they leave the fire department, they have really really struggle with depression and identity issues. So I think on top of leaving, leaving your identity, and then the heavy heavy stress, I I had like the perfect storm happening: not getting asleep again, not sleeping very well, working you know thirteen hour days, and then going right back to and I think it was just the perfect storm. You know, like my mom had told me when I was young before she passed away, time heals all things. I think for me, it was getting away from that and then letting time heal heal me slowly. Oh, I mean, I'm not perfect. by right? I means, But I, I am able to adjust and adapt to a lot of things better now. But for me, sleep was huge. Like, you don't get sleep. You don't deal yeah, well sure. with anything in life. And so sleep and exercise
0: for me. I agree. Is there anything else you'd like to share, Scott?
1: No, I think I've taken it up a half your day. No, wow, that's <laughs> fantastic. That yeah. Awesome. I appreciate it, brother. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening. Please tell your friends and family so that we can bring more joy and awareness to those struggling with suicide ideation and the families who desperately need help after the loss of someone they love to suicide.